Welcome everyone to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And on this week's episode, we welcome Kai Jackson, who's the CEO of Mission Strategy Group out of California. Kai has had, it feels like several different careers. He's uh, been a pilot in the Marines. He's been a uh, public affairs liaison, legislative affairs liaison for the Marines. He's worked with the uh, um, kind of a similar role with San Diego Unified Public Schools. And then he's been the um, Deputy State Superintendent of Public Instruction, uh, working on governmental affairs and other uh, big issues uh, with the state of California. So his background is incredible. Um, His stories are really interesting. And honestly, at the end, we dive into some of his habits and some of his best advice for all leaders that um, really rocked me to my core. Like I've walked away with his three B's thinking, all right, how am I living these things he's gonna talk about? And so uh, you'll have to listen. I mean, uh, Kai and I get lost in all sorts of different topics, but uh, he's a fascinating individual working his way from South LA, South Central, I guess is what it used to be called now, it's South LA, um, where his mom was a cafeteria worker there for the LA Unified. His uh, dad or his stepdad was the um, uh, janitor and uh, it's just really remarkable to hear where he's come from to the impact he's having with men and women all across the country and students. So Kai's a phenomenal person. It's a great conversation. Like I said, at the end, he gives really great advice. So um, stick through it with us all the way to the end. Uh, thank you again, as always, for joining. If you haven't subscribed, please subscribe to us. We appreciate uh, your loyal listening um, and enjoy. Thanks. All right. So Kai, thank you so much for joining. I'm excited to have you here. Thanks. I appreciate it. It's good to be here with you, Dustin. Yeah. So Kai, we start the same way with every guest is tell us who are you and what do you love about what you do? Yeah. Oh, gosh. (laughs) You know, honestly, Dustin, someone asked me this question in a meeting I was in on Monday night and I and I I started it out like this. Honestly, I said, um, I am nobody. I am invisible. Uh, sometimes they call me a super criminal. Sometimes they say I'm not capable. Um, sometimes they call me invisible, like Ralph Ellison. But the reality is I am a Marine Corps veteran. I was born and raised in South Central Los Angeles. I am an advocate for students. I am someone who cares deeply about helping others. Right. And really what I was what I was uh, introducing to them was um, how I am someone who actually contributes to society. But so often they see African-American men as invisible or otherized. And so uh, that's just a little intro on me. And I'm assuming we'll talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what that means or where that where that comes from. But, um, yeah, I'm Kai Jackson and uh, CEO of a company called Mission Strategy Group. Um, and on a daily basis, I work to advocate for students around the state of California. Wow. I think it's a, a lot of unpack. I, I think, um, I guess my question is how, how do people, uh, receive that when you start off saying I'm nobody, they're thinking, well, you're somebody because we invited you here because you're accomplished and you do all these things for the community and you care about people so much. And you're, you know, uh, very charismatic. How did that land when you said, uh, you know, I'm nobody. Essentially. Yeah, yeah. And this particular form that um, that I was in that I helped create, it was uh, Black Men for Educational Equity. I think they understood it. And what I was trying to do was sort of set the background for our meeting 
and the and the framework for our meeting was like we are here as individuals who have by most uh, you know societal standards succeeded um but but that we need to help those students coming up through the system so that they are not otherwise otherwise whether they're african american or latinx or any other um ethnic background so you said a little bit about um you know, to, to develop into uh, uh, such a mature answer to say, I'm nobody, but I have all these things or I've done all these things. Can you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, where you grew up? And specifically, I'm curious, what, what was school like for you uh, growing up from, you know, pre-K to uh, senior year high school? Yeah, yeah. So I went to school in um, Los Angeles, South Central, Central Los Angeles. And at that time, uh, you know, my mother worked for the school district. She was a cafeteria worker for uh, a school district in Los Angeles. And we were somewhat nomadic, uh, honestly. We moved moved around from places like Inglewood uh, and lots of different places in, in LA. So um, I started out uh, at school and Head Start, which, you know, is typically for a lot of families that are income challenged and socioeconomic challenged. Um, but one thing happened when I got ready to go to high school. Um, I, I received a presentation from a gentleman who said, if you wanted to do something different for your high school experience, sign up on this paper. And like most students that were in the auditorium, I think I wasn't quite paying attention, but I said, I'll, I'll go for it. And I ended up going to high school in Carson, California, at a school called the California Academy for Mathematics and Science. Um, and for and for those here in the state of California, it is the number one. It switches from year to year. The number one or number two school uh, uh, nationally rated um, in terms of academic performance and achievement. Um, and uh, I had a wonderful, wonderful academic experience. The school um, only had um, about five hundred students. It was located on a college campus. Um, I had teachers that graduated from Harvard and Columbia. And as a matter of fact, our superintendent that started that school is now a member of my group that I started, Black Men for Educational Equity, uh, Professor Carl Cohen, who used to lead the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence. So, well, so we had talked earlier and I, I apologize that I took us down a, a huge path without even recording our conversation, but we talked earlier about, um, you know, you went, you started out on your career to uh, become an astronaut. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Like, mm -hmm. I, I think that's what you said you wanted to be. Yes, and sir. where did that take you? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that was a good conversation. And, and uh, during that conversation, I said, like many, like many things which are very human and normal, uh, you know, came out of uh, out of love. Uh, before a number of reasons, I ended up going to college uh, at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Prescott, uh, Arizona, and um, I wanted to be a pilot. And what I realized, though, was that I underestimated what it took fiscally to get through college. And I found myself receiving a notice, like some students may, saying that I was uh, deficient in my um, in my uh, tuition cost. So I said I needed to try something different. And I went to a career fair only to meet a gentleman by the name of Gunnery Sergeant Bell, United States Marine Corps. And, and he told me, hey, come over here. And I says, no, you know, I, I, I wasn't, 
you know, interested in going into the military. And quite honest, I was not even aware that the military had aviators, uh, helicopter pilots and, and fixed wing pilots. Well, he said, hey, I'll guarantee you an opportunity, an opportunity to fly and be a pilot. And I, and I was skeptical because who, who guarantees you anything? There are no guarantees in the world, they always tell you, right? You got to work hard. Well, uh, I passed a series of tests and I went on to go to uh, flight school and become an officer in the United States Marine Corps and uh, certainly passed flight school. And so that's how I, that's how I got started in um, aviation, my basic career in aviation. Was there any point uh, where you thought, I need to quit and get out of this and head back home? Yeah, yeah. Some of them were directly related to the Marine Corps, but I think um, one unfortunate or fortunate, I, I'm going to go with fortunate reoccurring motif in my life, even from early on, is that I've had challenges that I've been able to overcome, not by myself, but overcome with the help of others and mentors. And I've also received a number of second chances third chances, fourth chances, so, so many, right? Um, and particularly, I'm thinking about um, college in terms of times where I wanted to quit. Um, there was one, one incident where the university put me on academic probation. I wasn't really doing the things that I needed to do. I was more focused on being out of class and in class. And, um, and they, they, they looked at me and they said, hey, you have to get your stuff together or you're going to be out of here. And so what I did was I just used the old adage, if you, if you can't beat them, join them. So I joined the University um, Student Government Association and I just, you know, I just became involved and I took control of, of, my, of my own um, destiny. By the end of graduation, I was awarded a leadership award by the university at the same time that I received my commission as a second lieutenant in the United States Marine Corps. But it was challenging getting there. Um, and there were a number of times I wanted, uh, I wanted to quit, um, but I, I just didn't, I just kept going. I just when, kept you, going. when you think about your career, because I mean, you, one of the cool things that you've been described to me as, um, a man of service, right? A man of service, both, you know, inside the military, but also with your life outside the military. And when you think about uh, your time in the military, how, how did that shape you? What, what were the, like, what were the real um, key lessons or key uh, events that happened that shaped you into this man of service outside, out in the community, all throughout California and our country now? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. You know, certainly just being an officer in the, in the Marine Corps, um, you, 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 are, you, are trained, you are trained to lead and they have a systematic approach, you know, to doing that outside of exposure. But I developed my, my leadership philosophy within the Corps and that I needed to inspire to set the framework and to set the example, but to allow those that work and I never say work for me, but work with me, regardless of whether they were above my echelon or below, to, to excel, just sort of setting the stage for them, them to excel. But I think in terms of, of, of service, um, when I departed the Marine Corps, I reflected on my time and realized that I had a skill set 
that I could continue to serve, to serve society in a way that would be beneficial. For me, education was something that my mother always told me, you know, once you have it, they can never take it away from you. And that could be your golden, your golden ticket. And so um, that's what I did. I continued some of, um, uh, I took some of the skills that I learned and then applied it into education to a life of service. I think for me now, um, what I try to do is not focus on sort of the business side of my work, but focus on the impact. And, um, you know, it, it's just been really a, a beautiful thing. Focus on the impact and give others the opportunity that, that I had. So with the Marines, you were flying helicopters, jets, what were you flying again? Both? You know, that, I like that question and because uh, <laughs> I think I had a very uh, unique career in, in the Marine Corps. So first of all, uh, I actually have a jet license. <laughs> I have a helicopter license uh, and I have a fixed wing transport license. So I have a little bit of everything, which I think is a little, little bit unique. Um, but that's what my primary what they call MOSs, military, was military occupational specialty. So I flew a little bit of everything, search and rescue missions. I have over 20 bona fide uh, life rescues under my belt. Um, I certainly deployed like, like most um, uh, men and women that serve in the military, but I did spend a good portion of my time serving in the capacity of legislative affairs as a deputy director of the um, Office of Legislative Affairs the United States Marine Corps and to Congress. And so I worked on Capitol Hill for just under five years, having traveled around the world, um, visiting more than 120 com uh, countries um, uh, on behalf of the Marine Corps and uh, to some extent the US Congress. So one of the things I'm, I'm fascinated with personally is you know, performance anxiety and how you, uh, how people have different disciplines to control it. Mm -hmm. is, is there, uh, by, I guess, after the 25th, is there a secret to controlling your emotions, uh, keeping yourself calm, uh, that you can share with us that you may not use today, but I'm curious if there's anything that you still use today that you learn from managing that kind of performance anxiety. Yeah. Um, I, I would say as a technical matter, I think um, the best way to control it, although a little bit of nervousness is, is important, right? A little bit of nervousness and anxiety will keep you safe and quite frankly, keep you alive depending on what situation you're in. But in a, in a more office uh, environment, you know, the seven, seven Ps, as they say, proper prior planning prevents poor performance. Right. And so when you can prepare and adequately prepare and train, um, I think that's the best way to do it. But 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 on the natural, Dustin, I would say, you know, having been a pilot, you know, I have a need for speed and I have a need for, you know, sort of these high stress environments. And so I just go for it. I just go for it and have confidence in myself. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Um, you know, one of the things that I think about with uh, kids these days when they're thinking about, you know, do I go to college or do I choose another avenue? What are your thoughts about uh, which type of student or person is the military a best fit for? And that may not be the right question, but that's where my head goes when I think about as folks are, kids are evaluating their future, should I, or is the military the right fit for me? Wow. 
Gosh, I, I appreciate that question. Interestingly enough, it's something that I have been talking to some colleagues and personal fr- personal friends of friends about. And so when I went into the to the military, I had a goal. I wanted to become a pilot, and I set my you know I set myself up for that. And on the natural, I had I guess considered myself a leader. Anytime there's more than um, one or two people in a group, somebody is naturally leading, whether you know a little bit or a lot. Um, and I wasn't quite sure that the Marine Corps was for me in terms of my personality type. Mm-hmm. Quite frankly, I was you know I was a, what they call a gunship pilot, right? And so I flew I flew Huey gunships, and they were utility aircraft. And in my mind, they were sort of a, a group within a group just like the Navy SEALs, for example. I mean, I'm certainly not as elite as the Navy SEAL, but Navy SEALs are an elite group with, within the military. Um, I'm not quite sure that my personality fit my military occupational specialty because I was a little bit, um, maybe I wasn't as gun-ho. Um, you know, what, what eventually I, I came to pass was when I was a major of Marines, I went to work on Capitol Hill and a lot of that duty was meeting with people, building relationships on the behalf of the military and telling the Marine Corps story. And so it was in that space that I learned that they are just an average pilot, right? No one will ever remember Kai Jackson, pilot extraordinaire. That was never the case. (laughs) But I did realize that I was a people's person. And I liked people and I've come to leverage that once I once I got out. But what I would say, Dustin, is um, you know what's amazing right now? Such an opportunity for people who who may not be sort of that gun ho, you know, rah, rah, but you know, the space force has come online. And what an amazing opportunity for individuals that would like to serve their country. Um learn a new skill, whether it's cybersecurity, space and satellites. And there's just so much opportunity. You can imagine Dustin going into the Space Force, serving, you know, anything from four years to 20 years, how much skill you will attain, right? If you were, if you were to do something like that. So I would encourage people to, to consider the military and consider the different facets of the military to include, you know, the U.S. Coast Guard. What a, what a one of our greatest kept secrets. I think one of, I mean, you just hit it out of the park of, you know, my own perception of our weighing my oldest son's decision, if he should go with the military or not, I wouldn't have thought of a a legislative affairs future for him in that path, right? Like, I'm sure there's some things you have to go through first to earn that opportunity. But the fact that it just doesn't have to be, you know, the one or two things that you have visualized from the movies uh, as your future there, there's a lot of ways to grow is pretty, um, pretty exciting, honestly. Yes, so how, how did you pivot your career to, to diving headfirst into uh, education? I was a quitter. I was a quitter, interestingly enough. Uh, and, and I say that a little bit tongue in cheek, yeah, but uh, what, what, had, what had happened, I'd worked for a gentleman. Uh, his name was Major General Michael Leonard just an amazing Marine Corps general, two-star general, who um, actually he was responsible for partially building um, Gitmo, just just super bright. And um, I had deployed individually to Iraq for a number of months. And while I was there, I had decided that I was going to transition my career. It was right about the 10-year mark. And I uh, was 
on glide path, as they say, for my career, I had received orders once I was going to come back to the United States. I was going to be an instructor at what they called HMT 303. And I was going to instruct on the newest helicopter in the Marine Corps inventory, right? But prior to doing so, I said, hey, you know, I'm going to transition out of the Marine Corps, give my job I would have had to a to a steely-eyed Marine who wants to move forward. So I had been back in the United States for about 30 days, and I literally, Dustin, had my, what they call um, they're your resignation papers, and you have to go to the administrative office. I was going to turn them in. But I hadn't seen Major General Leonard in, in a long time, and I said, I'm going to stop by his office and say hello, and I did. And he, he invited me for, for, for dinner, and I said, well, I, I, I can't. I got something to do. And he says, well, come on by. And I was so scared to tell him that I was resigning, right? I didn't have a grandiose plan in mind what I was going to do. And he says, nope, don't do that. Give me 24 hours and just don't do anything. And I didn't do anything. And I didn't know what that meant. And, and next thing you know, I got a call asking me if I wanted to come to Washington, D.C. Had I ever considered working, you know, for Congress? And, and, and I said, oh, well, maybe I should have paid more attention in school. What? Congress, Senate, who, you know, branches of government? Well, uh, I, um, I did something which was amazing. I called my commanding officer at that time, Major General Rocco, and I, excuse me, uh, um, Colonel Rocco. And I said, hey, sir, I'm going to fly out to Washington, D.C. to interview for this job. And I winced and he supported me. He said, go see what you think. Because one of the, the one of the things they were saying, well, if you want to change the culture of the Marine Corps, if you want diversity in the upper echelons of, of, of leadership in the Marine Corps, you have to stay right. You can't have all the black officers getting getting out. And so ended up obviously going to Washington, D.C. and um, interviewing for the job, so to speak, and uh, was very fortunate, one, to get the job. And two, I was married at the time for my for my then wife to uh, allow us to go. And take our family. Yeah. So, you know, as some, some folks who know you, some don't, uh, you know, work your way all the way up to being, you know, deputy superintendent of California education. Uh, how, where did the transition come to, I'm going to work with schools at San Diego, or how'd you get into working with um, school systems and focus on school issues? Yeah. Well, one of the things I'll say before we even start, because this is also a reoccurring motif and, and probably as a result of having challenges and obstacles. So many times in life, challenges and obstacles can open up doors, right? And, and so I'll say this is create your own trajectory. Look over the horizon. And sometimes just because something doesn't exist doesn't mean you can't create it. So, so I had a wonderful, wonderful time um, supporting the Marine Corps. And I was, I was blessed that the Marine Corps leadership had faith in me to allow me to do that job. Um, unfortunately, in my personal life, at some point, um, I, I began the divorce process. And um, the commandant of the Marine Corps General Amos, four-star general, said, hey, you know, Kai's done a great job. Major Jackson's done a great job. We want to make sure that he has a great career progression. We'll, we'll send him back to the aviation space. And it was going to be on the East Coast. Well, having been from the West Coast, my, my wife at the time said, well, that's not happening. That's not, that is not happening. And so they literally said, well, what can we do for you? And I said, well, sir, actually the best thing 
is not do anything for me. Let me just go through the appropriate process because it would impact, you know, me being with my family. So what did not exist was a federal legislative affairs director position on the West Coast. Well, this doesn't exist. Can we create the job? I don't think there's too many people in the Marine Corps that gets to say they literally created their job. And so they created this job. And then I went back to California and I became the Marine Corps Installations West Director of Federal Legislative Affairs, overseeing all the legislative affairs for bases west of the Mississippi. Right. So huge, huge job. I loved it. Family came with me. And so I did that job for a number of years um, and eventually transitioned out of the Marine Corps into this to the civilian sector. Um, and I just wanted to put my those skills of being a people person to good use. And it was agnostic to, 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 to the, the topic. So um, I decided education was the place where I wanted to do. And I, I uh, received a job as a director of government affairs for San Diego Unified School District, second largest school district in California, roughly the 20th in the United States. Um, and it was just an amazing opportunity to support students there. And after a couple of years, um, I met a gentleman named uh, Tony Thurman, at that time, assembly member Tony Thurman, who is currently the California State Superintendent of Public Instruction. And, um, you know, we really bonded around the issues of supporting sort of, I'll use the term, the least of these, but students that were historically um, needing more supports. Um, and then I, I went to the Department of Ed as their Deputy Director of Legislative Affairs and then transitioned over to their uh, deputy superintendent of uh, equity and access. That's awesome. So, uh, you know, one of the things, uh, again, my, my mom uh, spent a number of years as an, a lobbyist. Uh, and so uh, I am curious when you're at San Diego, you know, you could get jaded by the system, not, not by the school system, but by trying to, you know, get, get things through the state system what were the, the biggest achievements that you were able to help oversee with your team there in San Diego that you're most proud of? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes, it was certain, certainly an eye opener to, um, <laughs> to, to, to witness the, the difference in process from the federal level and sort of international level to sort of the city council level and local and school board level. But, but I, would, I would say San Diego Unified has, has a great team. They had a great school board and superintendent who who worked together and had a unified vision. And so I would say that any, any success that I contributed to the team was only facilitated by um, their district's um, leadership of framework, their setting the example and their, and their inspiration. But we were able to do a number of things. Um, one of the things we put into place some flexibility for school districts around the whole state, quite frankly, in terms of early childhood education. And we kept um, moving the needle forward on success for su the superintendent at the time was um, Cindy Martin, moving forward her equity agenda. And her equity agenda really included making sure that the entire educational ecosystem did not disenfranchise students because of their zip code. And, and it was interesting, we didn't, we didn't use the term zip code, but you knew it. Here in, here in um, San Diego area, uh, the freeway, the interstate freeway system, there's a freeway called you know, Interstate 8. And if you live south of the 8, which was not too far from the Mexico border, if you live south of the 8, 
Uh, you know, the schools were one way. If you live north of the eight into in La Jolla, California, Rancho Santa Fe, some of the richest areas here, the school systems were different. So in reality, zip codes played a part. But that school district worked very hard to make sure they put in systems in place that, um, you know, over overcame that, right, that really overcame that. And so one of the things I am uh, really proud of is the fact that they passed a I believe it was close to a $3 billion uh, school bond that they got to use to um, increase the quality of school housing. So when students went to school, right, south of the eight, they're not going to schools that look like prisons, right? They're going to high quality schools with uh, high quality ed tech. And so I'm really, really proud of the achievements, but it was only facilitated by their whole school system and their leadership. Yeah, one of the things as you're talking, I, I think about my time at uh, the district, I got to work in for a number of years, and the transient student population was always a really tough challenge we tried to tackle. And I am just curious, you know, I, I know that you spend time through, and I may get this wrong, but it's the Military Interstate Children's Compact Commission, uh, where I think you guys are focused on kind of transitioning kids, I guess, from base to base in the education system. I'm going to let you tell us what it is. But I'm, I'm curious what lessons you're learning through that that can be used for districts that aren't on bases to better serve a transient student population. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. And the um, Military Interstate Children's Compact Commission, it's actually a, uh, a consortium of sort or a compact with all 50 states plus one, which is the District of Columbia, which have committed to um, providing extra supports for students, um, what we call military connected students, where their families are um, active duty members, right? Because they say on average, military students change schools six to nine times through their K-12 career, which, which is, uh, some would say is provides a level of of instability, right? Particularly in the social emotional realm. And so while these students tend to do very well academically, they do tend to need extra support, support social emotional. So what um, I'm blessed to have been appointed by our state superintendent, Tony Thurman. Um, recently, the Department of Education has started what we call Purple Star Schools. And this is a recognition for schools which have best practices supporting these students. So for example, if you are a student that comes to California from another state because your parents were um, had permanent change of, of, of duty orders, right? Permanent change of station orders, they will provide you the opportunity to pick up where you are at and not harm you because um, of where you took classes in your other state, the timing of taking classes and making sure that they support you where you're at so you can graduate on time. So six to nine times, I feel like, you know, even within, I'm sure you witnessed this in San Diego, you know, we would have one of the things that we instilled this years and years ago was a, you know, a common curriculum and a pacing guide that every one of our schools was on to just try to give us a chance of, of a student but from one side of the city to the other, they had a fighting shot. But like that was, you know, it was a good idea, but that didn't solve any of the social emotional uh, supports. What, what things have you seen be successful for kids to help them feel connected or have some sort of sense of purpose or belonging when they're, when they're moving that much? Right. Oh yeah. That's, that's a, that's a great question. I think, I think first of all, the military has done 
very well in creating the school liaison program. And these school liaisons, um, they work for the military, but they have um, professional and personal relationships with their local school districts, which can allow the family and the student to connect with them either prior to a, um, a change of uh, duty station and change of school or immediately upon coming to a new school district. I found that these families um, that connect with the school liaison, these families bonding together, these families being um, integrated from the very beginning of coming to a new school gives them a sense of security. I found that there are um, school liaisons that really go out of their way to make sure that they can help the family with their school programming, making sure that they can align their classes that they completed in their previous district to future classes that they have to take in, in this district. So that's the first step, just to make sure that they academically don't get behind and they can take that course sequencing. And the other pieces I really think is just um, lifting them up. Uh, we have uh, the month of the, uh, of the student, what we call the purple star month, purple month, in which we really uh, celebrate and uplift military connected students throughout the state of California. And so coming into 2022, this will be the first year that California recognizes these school districts and these mili military connected students and families um, and provide them an award and recognition for, for supporting these kids with emotional, social emotional supports. That's awesome. So that way they have some sort of like special identity for, yeah, it's been a challenge, but you're incredibly special and blessed to, to be, you know, such a selected student, I guess, in a way. Yes, sir. Well, you know, they're a nuanced group of, of students, right? And so there, there's different sort of I'd hate to use the word um, categories, but uh, students often need certain types of supports. For example, you have students um, with, with special needs or special services and they, they receive supports accordingly. I mean, you certainly have students that need more social emotional supports, particularly given the time that we're going through now, mental health and, and student wellness. And I think these students, because they move a lot, um, there's making new friends, there's leaving your old friends um, behind, there's living in a new neighborhood and adapting, right, to changes that are beyond the student's control and they don't have a say-so in. And in, and in many cases, times where the parents don't have a say-so in, right, particularly when, particularly when the parent moves to an area that's more, more rural, Right. And there's um, uh, and they're adapting, for example, from city life to more rural life. Yeah, that, that would be an amazing challenge. Um, you know, your your career, when I ask this question, I know that there's plenty of years left in your career. But I am curious, given the, the number of hats that you've worn at this point, what is your most what, what accomplishment are you most proud of at this point? And what are you looking forward to the most in your future impacts? Um, your career. Gosh, that that's a that's a that's a tough one. I think. Um, let me let me start with with the former. What what am I looking forward to? You know, I'm really looking forward to. Um, I think first of all, growing um, my consulting firm, Mission Strategy Group. But for one purpose, I, Mission Strategy Group gives me the ability to do the things that move me. And, and honestly, uh, Dustin, I spend about 80 or 90% of my time doing, doing volunteer projects that, um, that make an impact. For example, I've been able to work with um, 
San Diego Unified School District and an organization called Those Angels. And San Diego Unified School District has 10 uh, gas-powered school buses. They're still in great condition, but because the school district received 10 new electric school buses, we've created this partnership between the military and the school district, wait for it, to send these 10 school buses via the military to Haiti wow. and provide these much needed school buses to a community and quite frankly, to a country that needs it so much. So that's that's sort of the free time thing that I, that I like to do. And it's just volunteer because we see the need and because I knew someone who could help uh, and work with US Transcom to do this. Um, so, so I'd love to be able to grow mission strategy group so that I can spend more time doing efforts like that and yeah. to support other students. I think something that I um, am very proud of, uh, at least professionally, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of um, founding a group called uh, Black Men for Educational Equity. Um, our main focus is to prevent the disproportionate suspension and expulsion of African-American students, um, particularly African-American boys between the age of zero and five, making sure that they're not getting kicked out of preschool, not getting kicked out of childcare. And so I'm, I'm very proud of that. Uh, and of course, I'm very proud of my two children, uh, ages uh, 16 and 14, that are doing very well in school. So, Well, one of the things that we know, people like yourself who, who make big impact in the world, uh, they all have daily habits or weekly habits that make them who they are, right? We, all, we are a product of our habits and choices. What daily habits do you have that um, you think set you up for success every day? Mm -hmm. Gosh. You know, uh, I, 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 I love Franklin Covey because he talked about building, building habits. And I'm very much a student in trying to, to, to learn these habits, right? I mean, it's the new year too, and I'm trying to get my habits and work out and things like that. But um, I, I would say there's one thing that, that I do um, that at least sets the tone for me. And there's a gentleman, I won't, I won't mention his name, but I, I respect him very much. And we talk and I go, how are you doing today, brother? And he'll go, I'm just happy to put my feet on the ground. And he'll go, how are you doing, brother? And I'll go, I'm just happy to put my feet on the ground, right? And so I just start with this, this gratitude that I'm happy to be alive and do something, right? That something can be different things each day. But just because for so many years, quite frankly, Dustin, for so many years, I've, I've faced so many challenges and I've been, been able to overcome them. And, and when you're young and you're in your 20s and your 30s, you, you believe that you're, you're invincible. For so long, I did not have this gratitude to realize how um, incredibly blessed I, I was. And I took so many things for granted. So I think every day that I give gratitude for, for being able to just wake up and do something, I give, I, you know, I give give homage to that. And so, so that, that's a habit. And then the other thing I think we, we touched on it is just, um, just knowing that I need to prepare, right? If, if you want to have brilliance in the basics to succeed in supporting others, you have to prepare. And that takes many, many forms. Sometimes it's just having a conversation with someone who's been there and done that. Sometimes it means reading um, early, early in the morning, five o'clock, six o'clock. 
And so those are some of the habits um, that I have that, that, that guide me. I'm, I'm not quite sure. I mean, success is a relative, relative, <laughs> relative word. I surround myself with folks who um, I believe are a lot more successful and, uh, and can achieve more than me. And I just try to learn. Yeah, I think, I mean, success for me is really just like the, the impact you're making in life. It hasn't actually like, it's not like a, a money goal or an achievement goal per se. It's just like you said, your feet are on the ground. I actually really think that's a, that's a good habit discipline to have because it allows you to be present in the moment and appreciating every moment for what it is. Mm-hmm. which is a gift. So I, I appreciate that. I, I, I'm certainly not looking for you to walk through your seven habits with me or anything like that. It's more of what makes you you, right? What is, what is, what is your process that makes you tick so that you can be the best version of yourself every day? Yeah. When, th- when I was at the Department of Education uh, as a deputy state superintendent, a, a, a portion of the, of the job is to... Um, uh, well, the main portion is to support the superintendent and his goals and priorities and for the Department of Education. In so doing, it's getting out there and sort of carrying the message, right? Right. And I recall um, speaking at a college there in Sacramento, and I, I hadn't had the time to prepare a, a speech or what have you. And I certainly had a lot of staff. I oversaw about 1,200 staff out of about the 2,400 at the department. So I had folks that would, would support me in writing. Well, on this particular occasion, I didn't. And I and I was anxious and nervous. And what was I going to say? And I says, well, just, just talk, just the talk. But what came out of my mouth was really interesting. And to your point, I said, well, this is who I am. And my family was originally from Louisiana. And we like to eat food. And who, is there anyone in the audience who are foodies? Right. And everyone raised their hand. And I says, well, I'm a I'm a foodie, too. And I started talking about gumbo and the roux, right, the R-O-U-X. And you got the base and the gravy. And sometimes there's there's um, onions and celery and spices. It's just great. And I said, well, I believe there's something of a roux in life. Mm-hmm. Right. These core elements that don't guarantee success. But if you don't have them, they could increase your odds of failure, right? And, and failure in quotes, because we know that's subjective. And I said, the three things, I've, I've come to refine it as with the three Bs, because it's easy for folks to remember. Um, be excellent, be value added, and be ready to step through the doors of opportunity when they present themselves. And when you think about it, um, you can drill down, but for example, on be value added. Be value added could be anything, you know, like huge and magnanimous, or it can be really simple. And this, this Colonel, Colonel Bohm told me this when I was working on Capitol Hill. He said, he said, Kai, when he worked on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he was value added to his boss who he knew drank coffee every morning. And he would make his boss's coffee. And as a colonel, he did not have to make that general's coffee. But he knew if the general was spending 15 minutes making the coffee, he was not doing the business of the United States Marine Corps and planning, planning to, to protect our nation. And so he was value added in that, in that simple way. And that was one example. And so be brilliant in the basics and be value added where you can. And it's not always, you know, setting policy or lobbying or advocating. Sometimes it's just helping out your neighbor, bring in the, you know, bring in the trash cans or what have you off, off the curb, right? 
Yep. So those three things, be value added, be excellent, and be ready to step through the doors of opportunity when they present themselves, which as you, you know, Dustin, a lot of times come at the most inopportune times. Yep. Mm-hmm. I, I could not agree more with that. As a father of three, you can't hear my youngest one who got tubes today, putting his ears, uh, crying upstairs. Uh, it's, there are opportunities that come at the worst times, but like you said, you've got to be ready. Um, and you just got to have faith and step out there and believe in yourself. Um, I'm curious, what, are there any books that you've read recently or that you've, you know, read throughout your life that are, have really guided you? And are there any podcasts periodically? I'm just trying to figure out how you consume information and what are some either good books that we can read or good habits we can have to learn from how you consume information. Yeah. Oh gosh. Ooh, I, lo- I love that question. Well, <laughs> well one, I, I, have, I have some books in the back. I've certainly read those books, but for so many years now, I've, I've moved to audio books and I still use the term, you know, read audio, you know, read the book. Uh, but you know, there's a, there's a few things. Um, one, there's a book that I, uh, honestly, uh, Dustin, I, I think I want to work on creating a, a leadership curriculum in part based on this person's philosophy who I, and I used to work for him. Uh, he was our former secretary of defense and he was my former boss, um, uh, General James Mattis. He has a book called uh, Call Sign Chaos. And I think it is a PhD level book in terms of leadership and leadership philosophy. Uh, so that's a book that I've recently read a number of times. Um, I also read this book called uh, Nobody um, by Mark Lamont Hill. Um, and it really just talks about how um, society in some cases has otherized um, African-American males, right? And you see what we're dealing with in society. And over the last week, I have been ravenous on, this is not a book, this is not quite a podcast, but if you've heard of Master's Class, of course, uh, I've been ravenous on Master's Class and listening to um, uh folks uh, about leadership and so listening to former presidents listening to former folks at the executive level uh in terms of um of leadership that's awesome um uh one quick question before i ask our similar final question is when you're driving through town or walking through town wherever you are uh what's what's up on your playlist right now what are you listening to what music do you like to listen to what uh, the, your favorite songs right now that you listen to yeah. Oh my gosh. There's a, there's a few, believe it or, believe it or not, uh, uh, I, I, I'm a runner, or at least I like to pretend that I'm a runner. <laughs> uh, when I'm running, uh, I know a lot of people like to jam it up on high intensity, but I go, I go low, I go low intensity. So I would listen to a lot of Anita Baker, right? Wow. A same old love and Anita Baker. Uh, when I am uh, in the car, I do listen to a lot of Tupac. I listen to a lot of Tupac and then there's, so there's all these spaces. And so one of the things I like to do is, uh, is, is cook, or at least I'm learning to cook, notwithstanding the quality of my cooking. Uh, so when I'm in the, when I'm in the, when I'm in the kitchen, I got a lot of Andrea Bocelli on and that just sort of, sort of sets it off. So a lot of different spaces depends what I'm doing. Yeah. No, I, I love it. I, I've always felt, uh, since I was a kid that, um, everybody has music for, the soundtrack of their lives. And one thing that I'm sure it's 
everybody, but at least it's proven to be true as all these interesting people we get a chance, we're blessed to interview here, uh, have a really wide spectrum of the music they're listening to, which I think is pretty neat. Yeah. Let me ask you, let me ask you this. Does it, I was actually trying to reflect if I can think of a day in the last, I don't know how many years that I've not listened to music at some point during the day. Oh, I, I, I promise you, I can't answer that. Like I, it's part of my daily discipline. Um, right. Music's a love language for me that gets, connects me in a different way to really wake up. Like I have a podcast playlist, like before I get on any, any of these, I literally have about three or four songs that I go through that, uh, just get me in a space to be fully present. Um, and so, yeah, music, music is it. I don't know what it is. I don't know if that's for everybody, but to your point, it sounds like there's a lot more people than it, that it does impact that way. Music is so meaningful. A, a, a person I, I have a, have a man, a man crush on him, uh, professor, Dr. Cornell West. Yes. He talks about how, uh, sort of jazz and the blues and the John Cole trains help just shape the fabric of, of our life. And so uh, music is so important. Yeah, I love so that. True. All right. So last question, uh, and I've got to give you your day back. Um, what's the best piece of leadership advice that you've come across recently? And it could just be not just leadership, but maybe it's just inspirational advice that is really kind of hitting home with you right now. Mm. I'm not sure if, 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 well, I will, I will tell you the, the piece of advice and I'll tell you how I got there. Um, the piece of advice is in those moments where you're preparing to make a decision, specifically when you're anxious, you feel your, your jowls clench up, you feel your shoulders go up, take a step back and pause. Take a step back and pause and maybe, I mean, if it's not life or threatening, if it's not going to cause blood or something, you know, really horrible, come back to that decision. One of my biggest leadership lessons I learned was, was um, compassion for people. Mm. Um, for my company, Mission Strategy Group, we have a little tagline, people first, mission always, right? And um, I, I come to that conclusion from a failure that I had, a huge leadership failure that I had, Dustin, and... and, and um, I, when I was working as what they called an aide de camp, I was a assistant to a two-star general. Um, the general, because he was so busy, um, he led multiple bases in multiple states. He had uh, myself as his aide. He had a sergeant that would um, be his driver, and he had someone who would help him with domestic duties. Well, this sergeant was a single father, part-time single father who, who worked worked for me, right? And um, there was one occasion where he said, hey, hey, uh, Captain Jackson, I, I, I have to pick up my son from daycare at five and it closes at five. And we were with the general and the general was having very important meetings and they run over sometimes. And I looked at him and I said, that's not my problem. Hmm. Not my problem. Like I was good, right? I was a captain. I had kids, but my wife was at home. So I was, I was good. And I was like, I needed to support that general. And, but I was so inhuman at that moment. And years later, I reflected on that moment as the ultimate failure in leadership because I did not take care of that Marine so that he can take care of his family, right? So how could he even do his duty if he's worried about getting to his kid? And at that time, um, I think they were charging at daycare a dollar a minute every time you were late. Mm. 
And so um, what I have taken from that moment is I was anxious. And, and when these decisions come, take some time back and really reflect on what it means to make a good decision, or in some cases set another way an appropriate decision. So I took that, that huge, what I consider a leadership failure and turned it into to something that I practice now in moments where I have to make decisions, sometimes split second decisions, take a step back from it and make an appropriate decision. That's great. Well, I would say your tagline of people first mission uh, always is something that exudes out of you. I mean, I think you can look at the things you've been blessed to accomplish with the people you've worked with over your career and just talking to you. I mean, it's really instance why we started this podcast a little bit later. So we went down a couple of rabbit holes because it's so easy to talk to you. And it's because I feel like um, you genuinely care, right? You care, you connect well. And so I'm sure that is a key part of your success. So I wish you nothing but the best uh, moving forward. And I hope you'll come back at some point. I think I've got a couple of ideas of uh, uh, conversations we can have and go deeper on. Um, it would be an honor to have you back. Uh, I appreciate it, Dustin. Thank you very much. And, and, and that's all we have. I mean, we see what's going on around the world in so many places. And uh, there are a lot of countries that are, are maybe struggling a lot more than us. And so we, at the end of the day, we only have each other. We can't take, uh, as they say, I never seen a U-Haul follow behind a, um, a funeral truck, right? So yeah, hearse, I agree. Well, uh, Kai, thanks for making time for us. I appreciate you. I know your schedule is crazy, um, but I appreciate this conversation so much. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you, Dustin. You have a great day. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.